Welcome to episode one of You Don't Have to Yell. I'm your host, Dan Sally. I'm really glad you're here, and I hope you're blowing off something super important to listen. Now, as I record this, it is 2019, and nobody knows what's real. The irony of unlimited access to information is it's actually made us more poorly informed than we were beforehand. And with an informed population being essential to the functioning of democracy, this is a big, big problem. Un problema muito grande, as they say in Brazil. Now, most people reach and justify their opinions with the use of either firsthand accounts, data, or history. And any one of those things can be cherry-picked to reach a false conclusion, but they rarely lie together. So every month, this podcast will focus on a specific issue, and every week, we'll have a historian or a firsthand account or my data monkey, Mike, to see what conclusions we can reach from mixing the three together. It's where the chocolate meets the peanut butter of policy people, and I'm hoping you're going to enjoy the ride. Now, in addition to subscribing to the podcast, you can also get more information on my site, Unpundit. That's U-N-P-U-N-D dot I-T. Unfortunately, Unpundit.com and you don't have to yell.com were taken, so we have to go with this confusing URL. Forgive me. Now, for month one, we're focusing on the subject of immigration in the U.S., and despite the fact it's flattened in this country, it's become one of the most discussed and divisive issues. Not that there is a non-divisive issue today. We can't even agree on goddamn straws. Now, my grandparents came over here from Ireland and experienced, shall we say, a less than welcoming American populace during the first half of the 20th century. So you can probably imagine where my bias lies. But rather than forming my opinion based on stories I heard eating jello at grandma's house, I wanted to grab some folks with a broader perspective of the issue than I did. So for our first guest, I asked Professor K. Scott Wong of Williams College to join me. And while most of what we consider to be traditional American immigration lore focuses on people like my grandparents, folks who were coming over from Europe looking for work in the cities in the East Coast and Midwest, Scott focuses on the migrations that were coming over to the West Coast from Asia, specifically China in the beginning. And so I wanted to talk to him and get his perspective on the experience of the first Chinese who arrived in the U.S. and how that differed from the reception of other immigrant groups that were coming into the East Coast. The one thing I want you all to look out for here is the role race played in Americans' outlook to immigrants and immigration, because there's a very real effort to define the racial and cultural identity of America in the lead up to and after the Civil War, and the Chinese find themselves right in the middle of that argument. I'll give some additional thoughts at the end of the episode, but without further ado, Professor K. Scott Wong. Thanks for joining us. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you reaching out. No, no, really happy. Like I said, I, uh, you know, I was doing research ahead of this and uh, just a lot of your work really, really jumped out at me. And, you know, one of the things that, that really struck me is, and in full disclosure of my background, you know, my, my grandparents all immigrated from Ireland huh. in the, in the earlier part of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of the tail end of that wave of migration. And so for me specifically, when I, when I think of the 
American immigrant experience, it really comes from that. It really uh-huh. comes from just waves of people coming over from Europe and and settling in Boston, right. New York. And and I guess like from from my perspective, it seems like the Asian experience has kind of been left out of that story. And is that just kind of my East Coast chauvinism slash Irish ancestry, or is that is that real? Oh, I think it's real. And I think part of it is because there's a number of reasons. When American started to study immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, they focused on the East Coast because uh, that's where the populations were. That's where the universities were, you know, mm-hmm. the colleges. Um, and, you know, uh, Europe- uh, European immigration to the East Coast is, you know, is the earliest larger numbers of immigrants that come to the U.S., much of it, you know, because of industrialization on the East Coast economies falling apart for various reasons or um, economies changing in Europe. So there's like a magnet. Uh, in fact, the U.S. is sometimes called the uh, distant magnet, you know, and mm-hmm. other people today even say, oh, well, to get to to stop immigration, you have to sh- turn the magnet off. And they mean things like welfare and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the magnet really is uh, capitalism. Um, so you have all these people coming from Europe to fill factories in the East Coast and sweatshops and so on. Um, and then in your case, uh, you know, although they come later, the Irish potato fan right, is, is the main impetus for Irish to leave. But on the West Coast, when Asians started to come, you know, they, they just weren't paid attention to as much. And then once they were paid attention to, um, a lot of people didn't like them. Um, so I think that it's it's not a mistake that most of the studies of, of immigration focused on the East Coast. But I'd also like to point out that um, despite the lack of Asians in America early on, Asia, in my opinion, has always been a vital part of American history in the sense that it, it is Asia that um, the early explorers are looking for, right? Columbus and, and all those people who come after Columbus, you know, and at first they're, they think, I mean, Columbus thinks he's in Asia when he gets here the first time, right? Um, and he goes to his deathbed thinking that, that he has been to Asia. And people, really? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And people who come after him, they realize they're not in Asia, but they're not really looking to, to settle the U.S. at first. They're trying to get to Asia. So they keep looking for the Northwest Passage or the Northwest Passage, unfortunately, with global warming. I think we're going to see that passage. <laughs> I, would, I would agree. <laughs> you know? um, and it's all to do business uh, with Asia. Because right? if you think about the colonial period even, right? we, we have the Boston Tea Party. Well, where does this tea come from? It comes from China and India. Right. So even before we're a country, while we're still a colony, we, we have this brisk trade with Asia. And there begins to be Asians on the East Coast, just not in what I call recognizable numbers. Right? But they're on these ships that come back with tea and with porcelain and so on. Um, and some of them jump ship. You know, we, we have scant records of Asians on the East Coast. But then with the discovery of gold in um California in 1848, 
then you begin to get an influx of Chinese who are part of the gold rush, just like everyone else is part of the gold rush, you know. And then they're and then once they're here, you know, they begin to you know eventually in the 1860s after the Civil War they'll be recruited to work on the Transcontinental Railroad, which you know the Chinese recently have gotten a lot of uh, press about that because of the 150th anniversary of the driving of the Golden Spike and so on. And and most of the workforce eventually on the western end of the Transcontinental Railroad was indeed Chinese. And so was that the was the first major wave that came over from Asia? Was it mainly from China or were there other Oh yeah, yeah, it, yeah okay. it was mostly from China. Okay. Indians to a lesser extent. Um and then after the Chinese are excluded, then the Japanese start to come and various other Asian groups will follow on each other's heels, shall we say. Yeah. So kind of keeping that in mind, obviously, when you look at the migrations that came over from Europe, or you mm-hmm. look at the migrations that came over from China, they both came over for the same purpose, yeah. which was which was work. Yeah. Uh, where do those experiences start to differ? Well, those experiences start to differ, I think, one, it, because um, Asians, and let's just stay with the Chinese for a while, they're, they're not white. Mm-hmm. They're not Christian, right? They dress differently. They speak a totally, for, for most Americans, an unintelligible language. You know, they eat differently and so on. And so their experiences begin to differ because they're excluded from joining unions. They're excluded from um, working with whites often, you know, um, and so on. And so, you know, white workers are sort of trained almost through propaganda to see the Chinese as people who come to steal their jobs. And then the fact that they're so culturally different, um, I think just le- just adds to the anti-Chinese fervor. Yeah. What I was trying to figure out as I was doing my reading is, was this a, an issue of just vast cultural differences? Was it really the issue that many folks in power felt America had a white face Mm-hmm. Or was it was it kind of a mix of the two? And it sounds like there was a, a mix of the two. Yeah, is I, that right? Or? Yes, yeah, I, I think it's a mix of the two. I think there's a um, um, yeah, a mix of the two in both its race and its culture. Mm-hmm. And at the same, you know, we have we can't forget that when, in my opinion, the Chinese come in large numbers at the worst possible time, mm-hmm. in that they come either right before the Civil War or during the Civil War or after the Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. When the whole country is is debating race relations, yep, right, and then the Chinese come and and there's you know white workers and their leaders don't understand their labor setup, right? So they see them mostly as enslaved people, mm-hmm. right? and that they don't want another enslaved race in the country. You know, it sounds like there was already this effort to maybe define the racial identity of America and Chinese just sort of were lumped onto the wrong half of that equation, for lack of a better phrasing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They don't fit the image. You know? Got it. And and especially, you know, in terms of phenotype mm-hmm. and religion. And I mean, even though not everyone who came to the U.S. in those early days were Christian, you know, we many Americans think that that is the national religion of of the U.S. and and indeed when most people the the earlier immigrants were indeed are predominantly Christian um, and they had a hard time 
uh, dealing with people who weren't, right? And so by later in like the 1920s and so, you know, you have this backlash against Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a backlash against Catholics because, I mean, they're, they're obviously Christian, but they represent the aristocracy of Europe, you know, mm-hmm. and just the whole anti-Catholic thing that builds among the Protestants. Um, so on. so that to be an American at one point really means to be white and to be Anglo-Saxon and a Protestant. Yeah. And that's, it, it's funny. So my, my grandmother actually has a story of taking my my mother and her three siblings to a department store in Boston and trying to drop them off at this daycare where moms could go shopping while the kids mm-hmm. just kind of ran around. And the woman at the gate said, we don't take immigrants after hearing oh. my, after hearing my grandmother's uh, accent. Now, now, right. my, now mind you, Boston it, yeah. it's, it's, it's like <laughs> another planet when it comes right. to uh, when it comes to race relations. So we, yes. we, we don't have time to get into that. Right. Um, but but obviously there was some point between when that happened, which would have been like 19, let's say 50. And mm-hmm. when JFK was elected, where the Irish or the Catholics were somewhat accepted into the, into the, into whatever you want to call it, the diaspora mm-hmm. of whiteness or, or whatever. Right. But, yeah. but, and, and, and of course, by the time I was growing up, it wasn't a thing. So, right. Right. In fact, I have to say, my I was raised Catholic, and when okay. I dis- and as I began studying immigration history and discovered that there was this you know period of rabid anti-Catholicism, that's at the same time as rabid anti-Semitism. I I, I was just shocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what would people have against Catholics? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I I eventually learned to understand that at least on an intellectual level. You know. Yeah. So what? I can I can understand in a way the issue of maybe jobs being scarce, the economy mm-hmm. being bad, and the misery of the majority of the population being heaped on the presence of a minority. Mm-hmm. You know, so I can understand, not agree, but I can understand yeah, yeah. how, for example, in California in the 1850s, how an abundance of cheap Chinese laborers coming over from overseas could get under the skin of mm-hmm. an out-of-work white American. Right. Um, is that always what drives it? Is it always economic or is there something maybe deep-seated that... I, I think it's both, but I think economics are so important. I, I think even in contemporary American society, when when the economy is good, people don't seem... Well, I mean, I can't say that right now. Yeah. But yeah. in the past, right? In, in the past, when the economy has been good, people tend to not get upset about race and immigrants Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. when the economy falters a little bit they look for someone to blame right and who's the easiest to blame people who may be getting social assistance people who aren't white people who aren't christian people who work for lower wages and of course it's not like they volunteer for lower wages that's what's offered and they're here and they have to make you know they have a make a living support a family you know yeah, and 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 so that it's it's interesting you bring that up because obviously I you know I was reading into for example the Chinese Exclusion Act mm-hmm. which effectively prohibited uh, new uh, people move, immigrating from China, right. um, and 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 I feel like what we're witnessing now is maybe the very beginning of the gold rush so to speak. Yeah, uh-huh. in, in terms of dialogue, right. Um, 
if you don't mind, maybe just mm-hmm. kind of walk us through what follows that because, and, and maybe how we could, and, and give us an idea as to how maybe that might play out or this dialogue might play out over the coming decade or two decades if we're not careful. Well, I, I think that the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, which at, when first passed, did a couple important things. One, it was that it, it only technically shut out laborers uh, for 10 years, and that laborers already here were not allowed to uh, bring their families over. Okay. Okay. The other clause in the Exclusion Act that's so important is that it also said that no Chinese shall ever become a citizen of the United States. And so once you cut off citizenship, right, which gives people the right to vote, gives people at certain times, you know, the right to own land, uh, own a gun, you know, things like this. So once, once they can't become citizens, then they're, they're, really marginalized, right? They have no legal voice. I mean, there are times in California when Chinese cannot testify for or against a white person. They, If they are brought to court, they have to scour up white witnesses um, to say that they saw this crime happen or to um, vouch for their character, you know, and so on. And and so the the original Chinese Exclusion Act does all that, and and it's only for ten years, but then it gets renewed every ten years, mm-hmm. um, and then it's just declared indefinite um, in 1904, and it stays on the, and that it's not repealed until 1943, when we're allies with China in in the Second World War, and in the meantime, you have children of of Chinese immigrants yes. born in the U.S. who are becoming citizens, correct? Yes. Yeah, they are citizens, yeah. And so they're citizens, but the the phrase I, I heard used, or I, I think I heard you use, was, but they're almost perpetual foreigners in a way. Yes, yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, in fact, there, there is a famous case, um, Wong Kim Ark, um, I think 1893, or maybe 1898, in, in the 1890s. And he is an American citizen because he was born here. And he, his parents, I think, moved back to China. He goes back to China to visit them. He comes back, and they won't let him in at first because he's not a um, – they say, you're Chinese. You, you can't be a citizen. Mm-hmm. All right? And so he, he makes – his case makes it to the Supreme Court, in which they, they have to affirm, no, he's born in the U.S., 14th Amendment, says if you're born on U.S. soil, you are an American citizen. So he's the one. Yes. He's yeah. the one who started it yeah. all. All right. All yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so, you know, they didn't use the terms back then. And, you know, but, you know, people, you know, accused the Chinese back then and the, and later the Japanese of, of anchor babies. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I mean, and really, for the most part, even the anchor baby thing is, is so fallacious, right? I mean. Because it's not like the babies can sponsor their parents. <laughs> yeah. You know, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, and so on. So, so the, but the Exclusion Act, I think, really is important to, to remember because if you, the challenges to this administration's Muslim ban, and then they later called it a travel ban, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the cases that are being cited in opposition to those things are exclusion, are cases that came up 
because of exclusion. Well, that's the and that's the first thing I thought of when right. I I started reading up on it was uh, this either you know now of course we have the Muslim ban we have the mm-hmm. talk of this wall in Mexico, Mexico right and, and and it does seem that you know while the economy is good now I I'd argue that uh, a big swath of the country's maybe not been included in that oh, yeah. growth for a long time. Oh yeah. And not to editorialize or anything, but I, I do feel uh, as if the one thing the, the president really dug into was uh, again, these, these feelings of let's call it ethno nationalism. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. These general feelings of fear uh, that there are, there's this sort of menace abroad. That's not like you. Yeah. T- yeah, I, job. Oh, yeah. I fully agree with you. I mean, I, I, I was on a panel discussion last summer, and I was asked um, a question about where do we, where do I see American immigration policy right now? And I said it's a lot like the twenties. You know, it's it, it's a lot like what led up to the 1924 bill that gave each country a quota. Mm-hmm. You know, and so on. But it's the same fears. People are, you know, they fear that their jobs are being taken, but they, but it's, it's really, their jobs aren't being taken by other people. They're being, it's, their jobs are just being lost to an, a changing economy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but there is this fear of, of the other and the other right now, uh, aren't Chinese, mm-hmm. but they're Muslims because one of nine 11, right. Mm-hmm. And two, just because they look different and, and especially devout Muslims, like women who, who wear the hijab or something, you know, mm-hmm. so so that there's this marker that people can then rail against, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's very easy to latch on to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, right. and and you know, and I think a lot of the people who um, who are anti-immigrant right now, it, it, I from what I've been reading just in like the mainstream press, like the Washington Post or New York Times. The, the most rabid anti-immigrant people tend to be in living communities where there aren't any immigrants mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. or, or there aren't many, you know, so, so they just hear things about them, you know, and so on. Yeah. Well, an interesting, <laughs> if you, if you ever want to look at the 2018 election as a referendum on how bad things are at the border, uh, yeah. I want to say there is one Republican district on the entire border with Mexico. And if you go county by county, and which I did, because uh-huh. that's just what I do with my life, uh, right. you'll, you'll actually find the evidence, I would say at best, is inconclusive. And so, huh. again, so it, you would say if there are, you know, indeed gangs of gun-toting thugs crossing our mm-hmm. border with impunity, maybe the people who live on that border would have a problem. And from what I can see, they either don't or they just didn't happen to go out to vote that day. Um, right. Yeah. And and yeah, and that I, I think that tends to be the trend. Um, I guess, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the, the plight of, of the of Chinese specifically um, in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. You, and, and I guess, do you feel like at this point in time, when we look at the state of Chinese Americans who've been here for now centuries, uh, right. but, ha, has that do you feel like that like like that community has been fully integrated into what we call mainstream American culture, or is there still this sense of being that, that outside foreigner? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think both, right. I, I think like myself, I mean, I'm a third generation. Mm-hmm. Right? So my grandparents came here at the turn of the 19th, 20th century, 
my parents were born here. I was born here. Right? You know, I've I've ass, uh, assimilated in the sense that you know I'm as I do American things. You mm-hmm. know, my first language is English. I only learned Chinese because I wanted to learn it when I was in college and in graduate school. Mm-hmm. You know, the rest of my siblings don't speak any Chinese. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and you know, and so yes, we've done well. We've assimilated. Yet at the same time, um, you know, there's there are still groups of Americans who you know wouldn't want me to marry their daughter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, or live in the neighborhood or so on. And I think newer and because Asians continue to immigrate, mm-hmm. right? And you have a, a you 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 have an influx, like almost a constant influx of new Asian immigrants many of whom who don't speak English, right? Many of whom are poor, you know, especially those who come out of Southeast Asia, Cambodians, Laotians, uh, to a lesser extent, Vietnamese, so on. So, so they come and they're not equipped to handle 21st century America right away. And so other people, other Americans, you know, look at them and they say, oh, they're, they're not American. They're just here to take our job. Mm-hmm. And what I find interesting is is that you don't, I don't hear of, and perhaps I'm just not reading the right things. Um, you don't hear a lot of African American opposition to to Asian immigrants, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and you don't hear a lot of Latino opposition to Asian immigrants, right? Um, although there may be some. I mean, I'm you know, I mean, certainly if you look at the old. You know, I, if I remember correctly, um, uh, Booker T. Washington supported the Exclusion Act, whereas Frederick Douglass didn't. Interesting. You know? yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, and he supported it mostly because of labor, right? He saw that, you know, Chinese would be a threat to newly emancipated blacks, mm-hmm. right? And the anti, anti-black racism in America, you know, was so strong and, and continues to be strong, but it was yeah. stronger at a time when, you know, um, Eastern capitalists would hire, you know, European immigrants who didn't speak any English over a black person who spoke English, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but because of that anti-black racism. I feel like the people migrating over from Asia, starting with, with the Chinese and then moving on to Japanese and, and, Mm -hmm. and Vietnamese and so on. It seems like in a lot of ways, they kind of fell victim to the structural racism in the U.S. that was really created by slavery and yes. and moved on with Jim Crow and and mm-hmm. so on. And and do you feel am I right there? Or am I off base? Would you say? Oh, I, th- I think you're uh, totally on point there. You know, and they didn't know. And you know, and depending where in the country, they weren't quite sure what to do with Asians. Mm-hmm. Right? They they knew that they weren't black. I mean, you know, people looked at them and say, well, they're not black. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also not white, right? And so in some states in the South, Asians were allowed to go to school with whites. In some states, they weren't. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that they were welcomed you know, with open arms by the African-American community in those places, um, but they were on the margins with them. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think a lot of it, yes, has to do with a racial hierarchy that Americans created, unfortunately, from very early on, you know. And I think America has always had this, what I call this, um, this ambiguity or this contradiction between this desire for pluralism, 
right? And that everybody should be able to live their own lives and be free to be who they are with this also expectation of homogeneity, mm-hmm. you know, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's really hard to do that. In a lot of ways, I look at my family's history and how quickly we were absorbed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that is due to the fact that it takes one generation to lose an accent yeah, right. Uh-huh. Uh, and and then that's it. So it's a it's a little easier to just kind of blend in with the crowd. Yeah. Um, is there anything that history that the history would indicate about maybe the future? And and are there any parallels you see where maybe this would indicate that either Latinos or Muslims would be integrated or not integrated based on what's happened in the past here? Uh, it's a good question. I, I would like to think that there's only a certain percentage of Americans who feel threatened by Muslims, mm-hmm. right? Um, I remember when there in in New York City there was the big controversy over whether there should be a mosque cre- uh, built near uh, Ground Zero. Yeah, right? even though it really wasn't a mosque, there was a prayer room that was involved that was near um, a Muslim. A cultural center or, or mm-hmm. something, right? And people got all upset about that, but they didn't get upset about the halal food trucks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. And so I, I think that they latch on to people who who want to find things to complain about. Latch on to certain things, and the easiest things to latch on to are the physical things. You know, mm-hmm. headdress. Skin tone, burkas, you know? Yeah. And with the Chinese in the 19th century, because by Chinese law, they had to wear, you know, men had to wear their hair in a long ponytail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh, you know, that's, they look like women, you know, they dress like women. What's going on here, you know? Obviously, language, food, you know, I mean, Chinese food is very popular, you know, in America today, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, you know, at one time, the Chinese were denigrated. Because of what they ate and how they ate. I mean, the fact that they ate with chopsticks just blew people away. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think I've I've developed a theory that the 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 indicators of success and assimilation for any ethnic group in the United States break down to: is their food good? Can they party? <laughs> Or right. did they did they bring strange weapons and diseases? And, uh-huh. so, and so far, only one immigrant group has done the third. <laughs> Everyone right. else has sort of gotten by on 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 one or two there. Right. Um, you know, there was something I wanted to ask you too because you were you were talking earlier about these conflicting ideals of America. So this desire uh-huh. to have this sort of do as you please environment, but at the same time, this focus on assimilation and homogeneity and you. Know, when I was reading one of your essays, you mentioned the the role George Washington played in, oh, yeah. in 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 creating this sort of American myth in China. And can you tell? Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, you know, it's 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 odd. Um, uh, you know, when the Chinese began looking to American history, and they became interested in things American, George Washington stood out not simply because he's the first. Um, president. But what we forget sometimes about China is that, yes, they had an emperor. But but from earliest times, you know, they believed, not unlike the ancient Greeks, you know, they believed to a certain extent in some kind of philosopher king. 
mm-hmm. right? And that that the emperor or at least high up officials should be moral. They should be educated. Mm-hmm. And so George Washington, they saw as upright. One thing that that they dwelled on was that he did not pass his throne on to his descendants. Mm-hmm. Right? Not knowing he didn't have descendants, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, but but they saw that in him, you know, and and I think to a certain extent that even you know they they had an imperial system, I, you know, this is when the Chinese are writing these things. It's about it's around the time when they're beginning to not like the emperor, you know, and the dynastic system, and and they're looking for something else, right? Uh, they ended up with bad leaders after the revolutions, yeah. you know, but, um, so I, I think they saw George Washington as both, you know, someone who was martial and yet they considered him literate, you know, and smart and a morally upright man. Yeah. Slavery and things like that didn't affect them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they could just gloss over that part. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that was, I think the, the, the thing that struck me or that was so interesting to me about that, is is getting back to the story about my grandmother and mm-hmm. and the story about her or my you know my mom and my aunt and uncles being excluded from this daycare was that after this woman said they didn't take immigrants or they they wouldn't allow right. immigrants my grandmother went up one side of this woman and down the other and said right. these children are american and they will mm-hmm. enter and the interesting thing I found about that, and I and 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 I found about Washington was that there there seems to be with every new group that comes to this country, there seems to be an ideal that lives in contrast to their experience in that country and the way they're treated, and it almost seems as if that ideal drives them to maybe seek what they view as theirs or seek what they view as, as part of that ideal. And Mm. in a lot of ways, fight the power structure or resist the power structure that's trying to keep them in a box. Right. Um, Right. I'll, I'll let that sit. How do you feel about that sentiment? And and do you feel maybe Washington gave that the, the Chinese community a sense of hope in America or a sense of maybe of, of an ideal that they weren't experiencing? It's possible, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is possible. I'm not sure, you know, the, the guy, the people in China who wrote about Washington mm-hmm. were the scholarly elite. Sure, right? okay. And not necessarily the people who immigrated here. Okay, okay. understood. But but to give you an example then of my grandmother, uh-huh. who raises um, seven kids uh, in Philadelphia, Chinatown. Okay. And the boys' names are George, Herbert, Francis and William. Okay. okay. And I once asked her, I said, well, how did you name the boys? Okay. And she said, well, George Washington. Okay. Mm-hmm. Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting choice. Yeah, right. Well, well, well it gets better. Okay. Uh, Francis rather than Franklin, but FDR. Okay. Okay. And then I said, well, what about William? And William was the oldest. Okay. Yeah. And she said, oh, the Kaiser. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and I said, really? And she said, well, he was in the news a lot. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. 
So, you know, like the politics of the Kaiser didn't, you know, I don't think it sunk into grandma, you know, but he was in the news. So in a way, it shows this assimilation, you know, yeah, of, of you know, pick the names that are popular. And, and if you look, you know, like if you were to look back at what a previous generation of African-Americans called their children, right, you find a lot of George Washington's and mm-hmm. and so on, you know, because, I mean, these were people who they felt were the epitome of America. Yeah. And so it, it maybe I, I read too much into George Washington or, or misinterpreted it, but it sounds like nonetheless, the, the people who did come over here for the sake of work from China did have an ideal or did have a sense oh, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, and held on to that in, yes. for example, the naming of their children in yeah. a certain yeah. way. Right. And, and, you know, they, you know, it, it took a while but you know i mean even even during the period of exclusion chinese sought lawyers to help them in Mm -hmm. in their in their legal cases you know the chinese understood the american legal system fairly well and fairly quickly it seems you know i mean they wanted to be here not simply for jobs and not simply to escape Mm -hmm. imperial china and civil war and then later communist china and all i mean I, i think Chinese liked the ideals of democracy, mm-hmm. and I think they still do. I mean, if you look back to um, the uprising in uh, Tiananmen Square, right? And, mm-hmm. right? They they had a replica, or you know, they, of what they thought the Statue of Liberty was, mm-hmm. you know, and they called it the Goddess of Liberty. You know, they 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 wanted, you know, they they liked the ideals of of democracy, mm-hmm. which is why you see all this unrest in Hong Kong right now, and so on. You know, the, the, the one topic I wanted to get to is, is the topic of paper sons as well. Oh, okay. And maybe just to elaborate for, for folks listening, the, mm-hmm. the whole concept of paper sons, correct me if I'm wrong, was that after the Chinese Exclusion Act, after China, mm-hmm. pe- people from China were prohibited from coming to the U.S., right. um, there were a group of people who claimed to be relatives of an existing uh, citizen. citizen, correct? And, or, or they themselves were citizens. Okay, and and yeah. and so they and so that was the the term paper son was effectively that they were they were on paper related to these people, right? Yeah, and I and and I saw some huge parallels between the the descendants of the paper sons and and the dreamers that we talk about today. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's quite yeah, that's that's good. I I hadn't quite put. Paper sons and descendants of paper sons and and dreamers together, but yeah, it, they, that makes sense. In fact, I'm a descendant of a paper son. Okay, uh, and the paper son system really picks up after the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Mm-hmm. Okay, the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 destroys City Hall. It destroys all the records, birth records, immigration records, everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. So after a while, the Chinese in San Francisco figured out that, well, they don't know who we are. Okay. <laughs> okay. So they started to go to City Hall and, you know, they would offer their, their uh, stories, you know, to help the city get their records. Okay. And, that, and they would say, you know, I was born here in, in, in the U.S. My parents have since gone back to China. And I have gone back to visit. And um, in the three times that I've gone back to visit, I've gotten married. 
and my wife, who has stayed in China to take care of my parents, uh, has raised two sons or three sons. Mm -hmm. And these are their names and these are their ages. Okay, so he so this man has just now created three new American citizens, right? Because they are descendants of a citizen. Yeah. Okay. And so then, you know, fraudulent family histories would be made up, fake papers would be made up, and people in China would buy those papers. And they would come to the U.S. having to, to memorize a fictional family history and all. Um, and then most of them who tried actually got in that way. And so clever. This is totally off, off topic, but I have to mm -hmm. ask. So you, you studied Mandarin. Yes, I did. Did, did you give yourself a, 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 a Mandarin name? No, I was actually given a Cantonese name at birth. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, most of the Chinese who came during the time that my grandparents came were a Cantonese. And I never used it. Yeah. You know, um, and then later when I started to study Chinese, my Chinese teachers would, tra would translate my Cantonese name into Mandarin. You know. No, I'm curious. So I'm, I'm actually, I've been studying Mandarin for a bit. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and so it came time yeah. to choose my, uh, my Mandarin name. Oh, okay. And so I told my professor, and I'm, I might butcher the pronunciation, but I told my professor I wanted my name to be uh, Li Xiaolong. Uh huh. Do you know what that is? <laughs> That's Bruce Lee. That's name. exactly who it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, because. Because I, and she said, "Well, you can't do that," and I said, "Well, why not?" I, I'm because I always figured, how hilarious would it be for somebody to come over from China and just be like, "Yeah, I'm Michael, right. I'm Michael Jordan. How are you doing?" Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's funny. I, I guess maybe just to to cap things off mm -hmm. for folks listening who are are again trying to infer from the past what we can expect in the present or how to navigate the present. Mm -hmm. Do you have any warnings? Do you have any advice? Do you have any predictions as to how this whole thing plays out? I, I'm a firm believer that the country needs real comprehensive immigration reform. Mm -hmm. We've not had it since 1965. Mm -hmm. Everything since 65 has been an amendment to or get rid of one clause, you know, um, open for some refugees, not for other refugees. You know, we we do need comprehensive immigration reform. The problem with that is that it takes a lot of work. Yeah. Okay. It takes a lot of work and a lot of compromise. And if you look at our Congress right now, uh, there is not a big willing to compromise. And frankly, yep. I don't think there's a willingness to do a lot of work. Frankly. <laughs> yeah. You know, and we do not have a president who wants to lead mm -hmm. on anything because it would take a president who is willing to work hard mm -hmm. and and to work with congress you know and to sit down with both parties and hash this out you know but and it's it can't be done unless there's there's a willingness on all parties together you know i think daca you know those those people uh, who are no, I mean, we, many people refer to them as kids and children. No, they came as kids. Mm -hmm. These are adults now, right? Yep. They're, they're at least college age. Right? They have lived there here their entire lives. They, they, need, they need to find a way to, to keep them, put them on a path to citizenship, and at the same time not encourage more. You yep. know? Yeah. Um, and that's just something that is going to take work. Yeah. 
and do you have an idea aside from the 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 process being built for for dreamers are there any other things that you think are essential to to making this system work better uh yeah i, I think we need compassion yeah uh, yeah I, I think we have to understand that every that people are moving all over the world right now mm-hmm. You know, it's not just the U.S., right? But you look at Europe, right? You look at parts of Central America, you look at Africa, right? I mean, people are moving because of civil war, because of famines, because of global warming. Mm-hmm. You know, there will be parts of the world that, that are that are habitable now, but will be in, in uninhabitable in 50 years. Mm-hmm. You know, people are moving because of this. And and many will come to the U, will want to come to the U.S. because we are the strongest economy. And we are free, and we, we you know have relative freedom, you know, certainly much more than other places. Um, and other places are as equally free, shall we say? Yeah. Right? You know, but maybe not with the same economic opportunity. You know, um, when people say you know that they take our jobs, they're not taking your job yeah. uh, because you if if. if in my opinion, if you lose your job to someone who can barely speak English, <laughs> that might not be their fault. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it it seems to me that you know Americans just sort of need to take stock, and you know, I hate to say it, but to read a little history, you know, uh, and realize that we've only been a superpower since the end of the Second World War. Yep. Yep. And you know, people talk about China as this rising economy, you know. China was the center of the world for centuries, you know? Yeah. Well, they, I mean, the, the, the name for those in, you maybe aren't as familiar with the language, the, the, the word for China in Chinese, Zhongguo is, uh, right. is, is center country, middle country. Right. Yeah. Between um, heaven and earth, there's China. Yeah. And I think they're <laughs> right. just viewing themselves as have taken, you know, having taken a short break and now getting ready yeah. to get back to work. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I can't. I, I know. I said it at the beginning. I, I. I'll say it again. I. I really appreciate your time, and I really well, thank appreciate you. you speaking. Okay, Dan. Thanks a lot. So I hope you enjoyed episode one. Now, you know, one of the big things that I discussed with Scott is really the racial identity of America and how you know many people who've been here for generations still feel like foreigners in their own land. And I've got a follow-up blog article on the Unpundit site, so be sure to check it out. Again, that is U-N-P-U-N-D dot I-T, Unpundit with a dot before the I. It's going to get annoying. I hope to God the Unpundit.com guy gets in touch with me. Um, started it with a question. I'm going to end it with a question. What does it mean to be American and what does it mean to assimilate into America? Because that's a big part of the dialogue today and I'd really be interested in your thoughts. So feel free to swing by the site. You know the address. I'm not saying it again. Or uh, or find me on Twitter. I've got at Dan Sally, D-A-N-S-A-L-L-Y. Next week, I'm going to have an interview with an old colleague of mine who came up to the U.S. from Columbia when he was eight. And... One of the things that comes up in the conversation is that he was actually undocumented until his senior year in high school, which is something I didn't know. It's a real interesting conversation, and it re- and it shatters a lot of the conceptions a lot of people have about who comes to the U.S. from Latin America and what it means to be part of the legal immigration process. So I hope you can join us. And until the next...
This is Unpundit, Dan Sally, signing off.